0: In 1996, Bev Schur taught her Emerging Diseases Seminar for the first time. The AIDS epidemic had been killing Americans for 15 years, and a lot was unknown.
1: It was a terrifying disease, and I think that it was useful for students to talk about what was known and how we knew it.
0: As the AIDS epidemic changed and more treatments became available, her students learned to ask how they knew what they knew.
1: I think that if I used a textbook, there wouldn't be any questions because textbooks just answer questions. So one of the secrets to having a good discussion is having readings that prompt questioning.
0: Cher has taught emerging diseases since 1976. The seminar was a lifeline for unsuspecting students in the spring of 2020, when their spring break became longer and longer, and they learned in real time that managing a viral outbreak It's not just a matter of science. It's a social issue.
1: Knowing the biology is not enough. You need to understand what's going on socially in order to understand what a disease is going to do and what can be done to control it.
0: From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell, and today on the show, what will be the next pandemic? Beverly Scher is a senior lecturer at William & Mary. She's been teaching her Emerging Diseases Seminar since the 1990s. Her students know there's always going to be another pandemic, and biology isn't all that's involved in keeping people safe, healthy, and alive. Bev, you've taught your Emerging Diseases course over a hundred times now. That's a lot of students and experiences. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And yet, it's never old for you, right? It goes differently
1: every single time because of the people in the room. Are they fearful of the next big one? (laughs) I have heard that hand-washing goes up over the course of the semester. Um, Yes, we are all (laughs) worried about the next big one.
0: But students especially, I mean, do you see fear in their young psyches?
1: Uh, Given that we've just been through a world historical pandemic, I don't see that. I just see awareness that this could happen again. And, you know, sort of, you know, grim determination to keep going, I guess, is the way I would see it.
0: What was the last big one comparable to the pandemic?
1: That would be the 1918 flu, and that was actually worse than the COVID-19 pandemic. So in about 18 months, it killed about 50 million people around the world, and so far COVID-19 is estimated to have killed about 20 million people, and the world population is much bigger. So it could have been worse. Um, Let that come for you, right?
0: Why do you think that flu was worse?
1: One of the things that we know is that the virus was intrinsically very severe. It it, it caused severe illness, and it's worse than the standard flu virus. That's pretty well understood now. Another issue, of course, was the kinds of places it ended up. So malnutrition makes people more likely to die, for example. The social determinants of health were things that were problems even back then.
0: I'll never forget something I read. And it talked about it hitting young adults the most. Yes, it did. And a father or a mother Mm -hmm. would come home from work feeling lousy and Mm -hmm. be dead by the next morning.
1: Yes. Yeah, there's a story of someone feeling sick getting on the trolley car, and they were dead 45 minutes later. These rapid deaths did happen, but many people died of bacterial pneumonia, secondary to the flu infection. But you're right that it disproportionately affected young adults. And we think we have a better understanding of that now, we being the infectious diseases community. It looks as though older people had been exposed to a related virus before the younger generation was born. So the younger generation didn't have previous immunity, and some older people did. And that made a difference in the virulence of the virus.
0: How strange is it that conversely, COVID seemed to attack the old, not the
1: young, so much? Uh, What they say is if you've seen one pandemic, you've seen one pandemic. (laughs) <laughs> you know, what we know about COVID-19 is that the fraction of infected people who die is the age structure of the population. So it really does kill people, older people, disproportionately highly.
0: There's something you call your favorite graph. And I'm <laughs> sure it's not because you like the contents of the graph, but how powerful
1: it is. Sure. So this is a graph that was published um, just before 2000, when we were looking back at a century of medical progress. And it's a graph of the United States' infectious disease mortality rate for the 20th century. And what you see is a success story, basically. You start at a fairly high infectious disease mortality rate at the beginning of the century, and then you can see it drop. And by about 1950, you're looking at a much lower infectious disease mortality rate. Um, And then it doesn't start going up again, Significantly until 1980, and you have to look at it pretty intensely to see that it is. So, we really did an excellent job at reducing death rates um, from infectious disease during the course of those hundred years. But of course, there's a spike in 1918, and the infectious disease mortality rate went very high for a short time. And you can see the 1918 flu there. Um, I haven't seen the mortality rate curve. Since 2000, but I'm sure that there will be a spike that's similar for COVID 19.
0: Is there a rhythm to pandemics like this? So, could we sort of guess
1: when the next big one would occur? So, the answer is no. Um, for a while, people thought that influenza epidemics might be cyclic, but they're not. Basically, I would say it's bad luck. If a virus emerges and can spread in a population, it will. And um, if the population moves around a lot, and people are immunologically naive, it'll spread quite well. Influenza is actually one of the viruses that we worry about for pandemics, because we've seen multiple flu pandemics since 1918, none of the same magnitude as um, the 1918 flu, though. We had one in 2009, um, started, as far as we know, in Mexico and spread around the world. And that was an interesting one, because again, older people did fine. Um, It was not a a large pandemic in the sense of killing a lot of people. But the people who died were disproportionately young because, again, they didn't have previous immunity.
0: When your students take the Emerging Disease course, what sort of textbooks do you give them that they focus on?
1: So we don't actually use textbooks. Um, The readings for the course are all trade books or articles from the scientific literature. So the core book for the course is David Quammen's book, Spillover, um, Animal Infections and the Next Human Pandemic, which was published in 2012. And I think if you've read that book, you wouldn't have been surprised by COVID-19. It was pretty clear that the next big one could happen. And one of the groups of viruses that experts worried about the most was the coronaviruses. We also read his 2022 book, Breathless, The Scientific Race to Defeat a Deadly Virus. And that's about the science behind COVID-19. So the science that led to the development of the vaccines and what science we have in terms of where this virus came from. And we still don't know the answer to that, but we have clues. So the great thing about those trade books is that they prompt students to ask questions. And I ask them to make a list of questions and comments before class so that they will have something to talk about during discussion. I think that if I used a textbook, there wouldn't be any questions because textbooks just answer questions. So one of the secrets to having a good discussion is having readings that prompt questioning.
0: You have good discussions in that class. We do. I understand sometimes
1: you have to cut off the discussions because it's that time. We've run out of time. Yeah. So that those are my favorite days where people are really leaning into the discussion and listening intently to each other. And I look at the clock and I think, oh, no, we're two minutes past the time. We have to stop. And there's some disappointment in the room because we were just getting to the good part. So on a good day, they talk more than I do.
0: You first started teaching this class at William & Mary in 1996. That's right. What was the prevalent widespread disease at that time that people were really paying attention to, and which others have appeared and gone
1: in the time Sure, sure. So the disease that we spent the most time talking about, of course, was AIDS, because at that point... We'd become aware of AIDS and you know, HIV infection in 1981, so we were only 15 years into the pandemic. We were just getting to the point where there were effective drugs to help people with HIV live long and relatively healthy lives. It was a terrifying disease, and I think that it was useful for students to talk about what was known and how we knew it. What do you notice
0: different about your students
1: nowadays from early on? So I think social media has changed things a lot. The internet has changed things a lot. The internet was in pretty primitive shape in 1996. Information used to be much harder to get than it is now. But it's so easy to get drowned in bad information now. I tell them that they're living in a Niagara Falls of information, and unfortunately the water's polluted. So it's Hmm. more important than ever to sort out what are good sources of information, and how do you know what a good source is? How do you check things? Um, You know, how how do you make sure that you don't waste your time on information that is not worth your time? And that's a really important set of critical thinking skills, and I think it's essential to life now. Where do your students get most of their news? Well, I asked, and I was hearing cheerful things like TikTok, and it made me very sad because, of course... I'm sure there's good material on TikTok. I know that there's a lot of misinformation there, too. So over the course of the semester, we actually talk about the news, and I steer them to um, the free subscriptions to the Washington Post and the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal that are offered through our library here on campus. I steer them towards things like NPR, because having professional journalists who check their work, curate your information for you, is a big step ahead. You don't have to go do that yourself. You know, they read a wide variety of things, but I think over the course of the semester, they become more discriminating users of news. I hope so, anyway.
0: You're giving them a global perspective on the spread of disease. Using the HIV epidemic as an example, how do Mm -hmm. you get them to think globally?
1: So I start with the history. We actually read a little bit about the first um, cases. Um, Laurie Garrett's book is actually very helpful for that. What is that? So it's The Coming Plague. It was this giant bestseller for a really long time. What I love about that book is that in her coverage of various outbreaks, she sticks with what was known at the time, so it hasn't gotten dated. And her coverage of the early years of HIV is priceless talks about what we thought about the science and talks about the political things that influenced what happened in this country. We watch the documentary How to Survive a Plague, which uses archival footage mostly from ACT UP, and it's about activism around the HIV drugs, which helped speed their development as The activist community started working with the pharmaceutical companies and with the NIH to design clinical trials and get the drugs tested. Then we pivot to a book about AIDS in Africa. So it's Helen Epstein's book, The Invisible Cure, and it talks about why HIV in Africa looks different than it does in the U.S., When we first realized that HIV was primarily a heterosexual epidemic in Africa, people were very surprised because that wasn't the pattern that we were seeing in Europe and the United States. So we talk about, yeah, we talk about cultural things that influence what happens with disease. And that, of course, brings up the social determinants of health because back here in the United States, we know that certain groups are at much higher risk of HIV infection than others And a lot of that is the social determinants of health. So who has access to testing and what happens in terms of healthcare access and mass incarceration and drug use and economic things in a community that influence what happens in terms of disease. Students begin to realize that knowing the biology is not enough. You need to understand what's going on socially in order to understand what a disease is going to do and what can be done to control it.
0: And you talk about trust or distrust in government yes. affecting the spread yes. of infectious diseases.
1: How right. do you, What do you share with them about how that played out in COVID? It's interesting. There have been many, many scientific papers that look at patterns of COVID spread in the United States, which states were affected first, which states were affected later. So again, social determinants of health. Early on, we saw that We had disproportionate infections and deaths in groups of people who made up our essential workers. So, people who could not sit behind a computer screen and be safe, people who had to go out in the world. And then after the vaccines rolled out, um, what we saw was a different pattern. We saw some groups take up the vaccine eagerly, so older people, but also there was that politicized nature of the vaccine. So... Um, If you were in one information ecosystem, you heard about how great the vaccines were and how you should go get yours right now. But in other information sources we were hearing, COVID-19 is a hoax. The vaccines are dangerous. You don't want to get one. They don't work. They cause, you know, terrible side effects. And so we disproportionately saw people in red states not get vaccinated. You look at vaccination rates across the country. And that meant that there were more deaths in those states, and that is a tragedy. Beverly Scher is a
2: senior lecturer at
1: William &
0: Mary. Lyme disease is the world's most common tick-borne disease to spread from animals to humans, but the test result to find out if you have Lyme takes weeks. Brandon Jutras and his team want to cut that time to just hours. They have a million-dollar grant from the Department of Defense to develop a rapid at-home test for acute Lyme disease. The method? Urine. Brandon Jutras is a biochemistry professor at Virginia Tech. Brandon, it would be so terrific to have a rapid home test for Lyme disease. Right now, it takes weeks, right, to get results?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So um, basically, if you think that you have Lyme disease, you go and see your primary care physician and, and um, they'll basically tell you to come back in three to four weeks um, so that they can test your blood for um, a response to the bacterial infection that causes Lyme disease. And so that kind of test has multiple problems. Of course, the, the length of time that it takes is considerable. Three to four weeks is a, is a key kind of window where you'll want to be getting the proper therapy and treatment. Um, It also relies on the patient's immune response. And so if you have a patient that's immunocompromised, they may not develop the the proper response in order to detect uh, that that infection. And then um, another aspect that's that's quite challenging is the test itself. It's a flawed test in many ways. And um, it's difficult to interpret, um, but yes, we're really kind of hopeful that our our rapid test, which um, should be able to work within hours of kind of the initial infection, um, should really be a game changer for for patients and for physicians.
0: Have you ever gotten a tick and wanted the doctor to give you the doxycycline you need to get just to make sure you didn't get Lyme disease?
3: Myself, no, but I know that there are, are many folks that that have... So that type of therapy is considered prophylactic. And so yeah. you have no confirmed diagnosis, um, but mm-hmm. based on the circumstances, yes. it, it is possible.
0: You know, years ago, my young daughter was rolling around in the grass and playing with a dog on a farm just outside Connecticut, where at the time... Lyme disease was sort of ground zero in America. And as we drove back home from Connecticut to Charlottesville, to my horror, I saw she was covered in these tiny deer ticks. So I started taking them off her, and I worried about it. So I went to a doctor who said, you know what? The test to see if she develops Lyme disease would be so long. I'm just going to give you doxycycline. And I was so eternally grateful to that doctor.
3: Yeah, yeah. You know, that is something that that can be done. And especially given the epidemiology of that particular case, the fact that you were coming from Connecticut, where Lyme was originally discovered here in the United States, it comes from the name Lyme, Connecticut. And so yes, the deer tick populations there are, are horrendous. And then importantly, the percentage of ticks in those in that area that are carrying the bacteria that actually causes Lyme disease is quite high, up to 60 to 70 percent.
0: So relatives of ours who live in a farm there where she was rolling in the grass had Lyme disease many times over. And one of them, I remember an elderly relative, had complained of severe back pain over a course of weeks. And then they found out that it was from Lyme disease. And it was the beginning of me learning that Lyme disease manifests differently and in different organs, in different ways, in lots of different people. Right?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so in the United States, a very kind of common complication from Lyme disease after you know you've had kind of a prolonged infection is uh, something known as Lyme arthritis, and so that's the the inflammation and the swelling of one or more large joints. So that's that's the most common. And that typically kind of presents in the knee. But there are other, certainly other um, articulating surfaces that can be impacted. Most often, folks just don't feel great. Then you, certainly you can go on to have some of those later stage complications. And, and we're seeing a little bit more of, of Lyme carditis now. And, and so that's, it's basically a, a disease that affects the heart and results of inflammation and, and tissue destruction of the heart muscle that can ultimately be fatal. I read that about 14% of the world's population either has Lyme
0: disease or has previously had it at one time. That's astounding to me.
3: And it also suggests that this isn't just the U.S. No, certainly not. And so there are some issues associated with some of the statistics simply because the diagnostic tests that we currently have available are so poor. Um, and so a lot of them are, are estimations and and some of them are even come from insurance claims. And so the true number of of cases, you know, throughout the world is not really well known, again, because the diagnostic tests are so poor.
0: Let's say you have a tick that carries Lyme disease and it's latched onto your skin. How long would it need to be there for you to possibly become infected with Lyme? And and what's the chance you'll become infected if you leave it? Might a tick infected with Lyme not give you Lyme?
3: That's a great question, Sarah. And so there's several kind of things there. Um, First of all, the bacteria that causes Lyme disease lives in the gut, the mid-gut of the tick. And so when the tick starts to feed, they basically attach and start to kind of consume a blood meal, um, the bacterium needs to go from that mid gut and needs to move up the salivary glands and ultimately, um, be kind of transmitted through the saliva of the tick. And that's quite a journey. And so, um, that, that, that we have several different, um, experiments that have been performed over the years on different types of animal systems. And so that, the, the quickest. Um, estimates are that it takes about 12 hours. Um, it's more likely that it takes a little bit closer to, to 18 or 20 hours. And, and so that's kind of the, the, the transmission timeline. You know, so one of the things that I always tell folks is that, you know, if, um, if you do find a tick and it's attached, don't panic, just remove it promptly and properly. And then it's a good idea to save that tick because like you mentioned and like we've discussed, not all tr- ticks transmit Lyme disease. So the, the deer tick is what it's uh, often referred to as, but it's more appropriately called the black-legged tick. Um, that is the vector of Lyme disease in the United States, it, primarily on the East Coast and in the Central States. And on the West Coast, it's called the uh, Western black-legged tick. And so that tick is the only tick in in the United States that can transmit Lyme. There are many other types of ticks and they can transmit other bacterial infections and viral infections, but that's the only um, vector that we have here in the U.S. And then depending on where that tick is in terms of geography... Um, will will largely dictate the percent of those ticks in the population that have the bacteria inside of them. And so in some areas, it can be as low as 5%. And so, um, you know, 1 in 20. But in endemic regions such as is in Connecticut and even here in the New River Valley where we're seeing massive increases in, in Lyme disease, the carriage rate can be up to 60 or 70%. It's
0: so interesting that a very large grant you just got to support your research into developing the rapid test comes from the Defense Department. Why would the Defense Department want you to develop a rapid Lyme disease
3: detection test? A lot of our service members are training here in the United States. And a lot of their training, of course, happens outdoors. And it happens in regions that happen to be quite prevalent as it relates to Lyme disease. And so they want our service members to be safe.
0: How long will the results take? How
3: rapid will it be? Yeah, so we have kind of a couple different flavors that we're working on. One is is a rapid test that is kind of akin to a to a COVID test, except for the sample that's being collected is a little bit different. In that instance, we're, we're hoping that that can be, obviously, as fast as a COVID test, and it would turn positive if you are positive within a day or so, two to three days possibly, of basically being bitten by a tick and and acquiring the bacterial infection. Another flavor that we're working on is a little bit more like the PCR test that was used um, during the initial stages of COVID. And and that is going to be a little bit more sensitive. And and it works detecting a similar molecule, but it's doing it in a fundamentally different way. And so... um, the simple, short answer to that is simply that that will have this kind of turnaround time, you know, that 24 to 48 hours like the qPCR tests had for, for COVID. And that would have to happen in a clinical setting. Um, however, we anticipate that that will be much more sensitive and the tests result in terms of accuracy and sensitivity Um, could be as quickly as an hour to two hours after the transmission.
0: Ooh, after transmission. So you don't just have to be weeks into it and feeling miserable and riddled with Lyme. You could have just had your bite and not long after that, detect just those first viral bits.
3: Right. What this is is detecting is that the bacterium and specifically a an unusual piece of the bacterium that they kind of spit out as they grow. And this was something that we had discovered several years ago as an important kind of molecule that is related to the inflammatory responses that patients experience during, during the Lyme infection. And so you have an abundant molecule that's extremely unique and only the bacteria that are growing are shedding it.
0: What's frustrating you now? I mean, what's what's holding you back? Why you're not fully there?
3: Oh, it's it's simply it, there are so many permutations and variables associated with these things. We're starting to turn towards robots and liquid handlers so that we can test basically hundreds of permutations at a time. But frankly. Um, it's, there's just many variables and then there's dozens and dozens of different conditions to test for each variable. And so it's kind of an iterative approach. And then, you know, we want to know when this thing fails. We want to know when it's going to be accurate, when it's not going to be accurate. What are the detection limits? What is the sensitivity? What is the specificity? Um, kind of all of the, 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 the hallmarks and, and, and critical things that you need to think about when you think about developing a diagnostic test.
0: You know, COVID, you're testing saliva and nose swabs. What would this rapid test test?
3: Uh, for a kind of home test, this would be a urine based test. And so we have some exciting preliminary data that this is achievable and that this is a one way in which we can detect these molecules that are being shed in a in a clinical setting in more of that kind of PCR setting where it takes 24 to 48 hours to get your results back that would be a blood test how close are you to hitting the market i think if everything goes well it could be within the next 2 maybe 3
0: Brendan Jutras is a biochemistry professor at Virginia Tech. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. When COVID first broke out, wastewater became very valuable. Researchers used wastewater to track COVID pathogens and identify hotspots. we have come a long way from global lockdowns and shuttered schools, but COVID's effects are far from over. Sarah Hauser is a professor of biology at Radford University. She's been collaborating with the Virginia Department of Health and the local water authority to measure the levels of SARS, COVID, and other pathogens in the area's wastewater. She's doing this in Roanoke, Virginia, and the surrounding area. Sarah, how exactly does wastewater detection work? Are you getting your samples from manholes? And how do you do
2: it? Uh, It is just as inglorious as you would imagine, Uh, We take a bucket, a sterile bucket, and tie a rope to it and just toss it down in the sewage system and pull it up and pour that water into our little sample containers. How far down is it? Oh, gosh, Um, 20 feet, maybe even deeper. It could be 20 feet. It could be 30 feet. So, yeah, we take a lot of rope. Do you have a lot of protective clothing? We do. I have several research students, and these were Radford University Carillion students, that would help me with the project. And yes, we would wear um, proper PPE to do our collections.
0: Are you finding anything interesting to you?
2: Yes. We found, well, in the midst of the COVID pandemic, every site that we sampled, of course, had COVID in the, um, in the wastewater. It was just all over, up and down and up and down and up and down. But we were able to see the increase in COVID about a week, a week and a half, maybe even two weeks before we saw the actual clinical cases of COVID go up. So this was truly a a good predictor of what was going to be happening in the community in a week and a half or two weeks.
0: There was so much news about universities all over the country mm-hmm. detecting COVID in their student dorms back in the early days when students were first isolated in dorms. Did you see any of that?
2: Yes, I followed that very closely across the United States where they were actually tracking to a specific dorm where they would see higher than normal levels of COVID. And it was, it was fascinating to see what was what was going on with this data and how they were using it.
0: Tell me about the research you're doing right now. You're part of a nationwide effort to track pathogens in wastewater that aren't COVID.
2: Yes, I have two other collaborators here in my building, Susan Tolliver and Jay Rao, who operate the Carilion Basic Sciences Lab. But we have kind of switched our focus now Different, different grant, different money, but still from, from our local Department of Health. We're looking for um, a fungal pathogen called candida that's becoming more and more uh, persistent in the population and is very um, resistant to the typical medications used to treat it. So that's terribly concerning. Another pathogen is pseudomonas. Pseudomonas which is also becoming more and more antibiotic resistant. Salmonella, E. coli, so those are the types of pathogens that we're sampling um, sampling for right now and the antibiotic resistance genes that might be found in those pathogens. Right now, a lot of us are in the, oh my gosh, stage that for something like Candida auris, It is a fungus, uh, a yeast, that is becoming more and more resistant to the typical medications that we have used to treat it. And the the problem with this bug is not only is it becoming multi-drug resistant, it's becoming more prevalent. So we're seeing more patients pick up this infection of, you know, conditions that we could normally treat with antibiotics, There's also Pseudomonas, and again, the fancy fancy name is Pseudomonas aeruginosa, the scientific name. This has been a hospital-acquired pathogen for several years, and it, too, is becoming more and more antibiotic-resistant. It can cause wound infections, pneumonias. What do we do with these patients that pick up these infections and we don't have drugs to treat them? and there's not a lot of antibiotics that are coming down the pike from pharmaceutical companies right now.
0: Have you found either of those pathogens yet in your samples?
2: We have found Pseudomonas in our samples. We're also looking for Salmonella. We're also looking for E. coli, and we have found those. We have not yet found the, the fungus, the candida, in wastewater yet, but it's it's a little bit since it's a fungus it's a little bit of a different beast and we're kind of tweaking our detection method because your theory is maybe
0: it's there but we're not picking correct. It up correct correct where's the concern about the pathogens coming from is this a nationwide effort
2: this is a nationwide effort if you um, go on the CDC website. You will see articles upon articles upon articles about different states, different localities. Uh, So this is something that's going on across the United States. It's going on in other countries. Uh, Israel, Spain have very, very active wastewater surveillance programs going on. So this is not just nationwide. This is all over.
0: When did scientists first start really looking at water? and waterborne illnesses and realizing that's a problem and there's a way we can detect outbreaks.
2: Well, if you want to go all the way back to the mid-1800s with um, John Snow, who is the father of epidemiology for a really good reason, he actually was studying a horrific cholera outbreak that was going on in London during that time. Again, the mid-1800s and uh he saw just hundreds of people, if not thousands uh over a few years he um I think that they said that over forty thousand people actually succumbed to cholera, and of course most of those are, are babies and and children so John Snow was um trying to figure out what what the heck was causing this epidemic, and this was before Louis Pasteur introduced the germ theory of disease. So he actually decided to go house to house to house, find out who has cholera, who doesn't. He took those cases, put them on a map that also had mapped out the different pumps where people would go to get their water from the river. So he noticed that there was a particular pump called the Broad Street pump because it was on Broad Street. Um, He noticed a particular high level of cases near that pump. He showed this map to the government and they decided that uh, there's got to be something going on. We don't really know what it is. But it's so concerning that we're actually going to take the pump handle off of the Broad Street pump. And when they did that, when the government did that, Mm -hmm. they saw the cases in that area start to go down.
0: Years later, there was also significant investigation of water supplies when polio was devastating especially children in America in the mid-1900s. Yes,
2: I think we could probably trace really the first wastewater-based epidemiology to what was going on with polio, particularly in the United States. Uh, Scientists knew that it was a uh, virus that could be spread, what we call fecal oral. Then it's probably going to be found in fecal material, so let's sample wastewater and see what's happening to the levels of polio. So that's what they did, and that was able to predict uh, to some degree where the polio was going to be um, increasing in the future. And maybe now we can start concentrating our public education you know, telling these parents, don't let your kids go to the swimming hole and swim. Don't let your kids go to the swimming pool swimming pool and swim because we're seeing, you know, really high levels of polio.
0: Polio was devastating to children in the 1940s and 50s.
2: Yes. Um, polio was absolutely devastating. I, I remember um, parents when I was a, a young child being terrified of polio which tells you how old I am.
0: I remember lining up in the gym in the fourth grade to take a little sugar cube Mm -hmm. with a drop of
2: something pink on it. Right. And that was the vaccine. Right, yes. I remember lining up when I was in first grade uh, in the gym for my little um, sugar cube with the, the vaccine included on it. I also remember being one of the first rounds of kids to receive the MMR vaccine, too. So, yeah, those were the good old days.
0: You and your undergraduate students recently did an experiment to see if there were spikes in COVID after the holidays. What did you find?
2: Yes, I've had six, seven, eight young ladies who have worked with me on this project over the past three years. I looked at the level of covid in our wastewater samples right at about Thanksgiving. I looked at levels of COVID about a week or two weeks after Thanksgiving, of course, after everybody had gathered together and infected each other and everybody else. So I looked at levels of COVID in the wastewater about two weeks after Thanksgiving, and sure enough, it spiked. So um, there was a lot of person-to-person transmission going on over the holidays, which is what we expected. And then I did the same thing for Christmas holiday. And what um, what Dr. Fauci was saying was true, um, that congregating together in groups was going to drive the levels of COVID up in the population. And it did.
0: We saw it in our family.
2: Yeah, I spent a, a Christmas all by myself um, due to uh, being exposed to COVID.
0: Sarah Hauser is a professor of biology at Radford University. Did you ever get pinworms as a kid? It's a sign of a childhood well-spent. You were in those pinworms in the sandbox, but they're no fun. They're parasites and a kind of nematode. Mandy Kyle Gibson is a professor of biology at the University of Virginia. She loves studying nematodes, and she's examining how parasitic nematodes can be deliberately introduced into an environment to help solve a problem. Mandy Kyle Gibson has been named an outstanding faculty member by the State Council of Higher Education for Virginia. Mandy, you study these worms called nematodes, what you think of as amazing creatures, really?
4: <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think they're they're amazing. They have this incredible variety of ways that they interact with the world. Right? You could find them infecting our blood or our lymphatic system or our tissues, but you could also find them infecting a root of a plant, or infecting a leaf or a stem, or living in soil, or living in permafrost, or living inside of an insect or a whale gut or at the the bottom of the ocean. So it's just incredible ecological variety that's actually quite rare to see so many strategies captured in a single group, a single phylum, that at least at first glance, morphologically, they all look almost sort of at first glance exactly the same. Um, I'm a disease biologist and I study evolution and they're amazing sort of from both those perspectives. What do you mean evolution? Why would nematodes
0: help you with that?
4: It's a very fast process. Populations change very rapidly. But if you want to study it, or right, you need to have time on your hands. Right? And if you're studying say evolution of something like humans or elephants that are very long-lived, it can take a long time to see those changes. But if something like nematodes, there are many species of nematodes that are very short, what we call generation time. So a nematode can be born on day one and be making babies by day four. I can study 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 generations of these nematodes.
0: So what are nematodes? I mean, are they parasites or are they viral or are they just worm vehicles for parasites?
4: Okay, so the nematodes are they're roundworms is what we call them. It's a phylum, so that means it's a very large group of many species. Some of those are parasites, so some of them either infect animals, whether they be vertebrates like many, many humans, or they might infect insects or many of them also infect plants. There's also free living ones, right, so that live around the world doing their own thing, not living inside of another organism, causing it harm. And those themselves can have parasites, of course. Everything can
0: have parasites. So do we have nematodes in us
4: you may or may not at any given point in time. I'll leave that to you to sort of figure that out with your doctor. Um, we you know, as maybe the group of listeners, the nematode they might be most familiar with, having personally experienced, might be pinworms. So kids will get pinworms, like from sandboxes. But in general, in the US, there's not an enormous amount of nematode infection that humans are getting. Most of the major nematode parasites you'll find in other parts of the world, parts of the world that might have a lot of, these are typically diseases of poverty.
0: Help me understand what you're trying to study now. You are looking at nematodes in the context of how can you help plant growth, crops, farmers, that kind of thing. What's your mission?
4: Yeah, so that's one of the things that we do in my lab. We study a nematode. They're called the root knot nematodes or Meloidogyne is the genus name. Um, so these are one of the most problematic parasites of crop plants globally. So in general, nematodes cause hundreds of billions of dollars in lost crop yield annually. And this is the most, Meloidogyne is considered the most devastating of those crop parasites. One of the questions we ask in our lab is generally, what can we learning more about these nematodes help with how to manage them? But we also actually study um, bacteria that infect these nematodes as a means of potentially of controlling them.
0: Oh, that's interesting. The idea that maybe we would introduce certain bacteria and solve a problem.
4: Yeah, exactly. It's a very common practice. In general, it's called biological control. So it's instead of using a chemical control like a pesticide or a fungicide, you use a living, a biological control. Um, It's very commonly used. It's very effective. Largely in agriculture, but also in in management of invasive species.
0: Can't that sort of thing also get out of control? Can't conceivably it also become the Wuhan ground zero for uh,
4: COVID lab release? <laughs> right. No, certainly. Yeah, of of course. I mean, these things have happened with biological control, particularly I would say decades ago when folks start, first started practicing biological control. There there were some perhaps mistakes that were made. But frankly, those have gotten a lot more airtime than all the success stories, um, and so yeah. So everyone learns. I get this question all the time. Everyone learns about biological control, and they learn about sort of how they introduced cane toads to Australia to control a crop, an insect crop pest, and then now the cane toads are taken over Australia and our you know native mammals eat it and die because they're because uh, they're toxic. And so there's folks have these sort of apocalyptic ideas in their mind about what biological control is. Um, but in fact, there's an enormous number of success stories. It's incredibly common. It's also increasingly implemented very thoughtfully and safely. One of the most common is parasitoid wasps. so They're wasps that lay their eggs inside of um, insects that live on our crops and that attack our crops. And so then the, the little egg develops inside the insect and basically eats it from the inside out. And... Has a, does a great job of reducing our pest population. So it's very common. When you're doing this
0: very specific work with nematodes in a number of different fronts with nematodes in your lab, are you sometimes also picturing a particular crop and industry that you're trying to help out eventually?
4: Yeah. So the hypothesis is a really old one, and it is that disease does not spread as readily in populations of, where hosts are distantly related to one another, right? And so you can – and I'm thinking of hosts of the same species. So We're not, ta- we're not talking about um, species diversity. We're talking about actually diversity within a population. And so you can think of this as you might have populations where everybody's in the same family, so they're really closely related. And – Populations where individuals are all from different families. They're all really distantly related. And we'd expect disease to spread. The hypothesis would predict that disease would spread much more readily in those populations that are sort of all close families. That an infection or a parasite or a pathogen has some sort of specificity so that they can infect everyone equally and they might infect um individuals of a particular type right that share a particular set of genes more readily than individuals that are genetically distinct that have a different set of genes so that's sort of the assumption there so if you put them into a group where hosts or have some are genetically distinct from one another they're going to do well on some hosts but not others right so you sort of stymie the transmission of the disease
0: are you making that happen in the lab are you seeing that increasing the diversity of hosts whether plants or bacteria is dramatically reducing spread of disease?
4: Um, So we actually tested this in a slightly different way. So lots of folks have tested that experimentally, which is what you're describing, right? So they've set up populations of hosts, some of them very closely related, some of them very distantly related, and they've let disease go through and they've measured sort of the burden of disease in those populations. And those experiments have been run for a long time. I think the first experiments in agriculture started maybe in the... 60s or 70s. So we've been doing this for a long time. So what actually folks in my lab did, I did this with an undergraduate, Anna Wynn, who graduated a few years ago and is now in dental school. We actually did um, a quantitative synthesis of all that prior work, right? So we took all these different studies that have tested this we extracted the data or their results, and then we obtained sort of a general, what is the general effect across all these different studies where you've you tested the effect of diversity on disease in populations of mice and populations of crustaceans and populations of plants like goldenrod and populations of bacteria. And you've t- done it across all these different conditions. Is there a general effect of diversity, when you, even when you have all that variation of sort of experimental design and taxonomic background? And the answer was, yeah, there's a really striking effect. Um, so genetic diversity consistently reduces disease by 20% on average.
0: What does that tell us for peanut farmers, for instance?
4: Well, the effects in crops are even more dramatic. So at crop, if you just focus on crop studies, the effect of diversity is to reduce disease by 50%. That's a massive effect. That's huge. It's huge. Yeah. And it um, it has some yield consequences, of course, perhaps not as large as you might think. But one of the big effects of it is that you don't actually have to use nearly as much, say, for example, fungicide, right? Some of the biggest agricultural diseases are fungus. And so we use an enormous amount of fungicide to control those diseases. And so if you implement diversity and you can reduce fungal disease by 50%, that's that much less fungicide that you have to use. Um, There's a really amazing study from the 2000s on rice blasts. So this is a fungus that infects rice, introducing genetic diversity. And I'm I'm talking about using, instead of just using one cultivar of rice, so it would be a monoculture, you use two cultivars in a field. That reduced rice blast disease by 75 to 95%. Oh, my gosh. Which is massive, right? Yeah. It's an amazing potential tool. Mandy Gibson, thank
0: you so much for sharing your insights on nematodes with me on With Good Reason. Thank you. Mandy Kyle Gibson is a professor of biology at the University of Virginia. She's been named an outstanding faculty member by the State Council of Higher Education for Virginia. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monacan Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz. Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Aviva Costa is our intern. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast or a comment, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.